Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today's guest is Jeff Nussbaum, former speechwriter for President Joe Biden and author of an incredible new book. It's called Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. Jeff started his career as a speechwriter in the Clinton White House, where he eventually joined the speechwriting office for Vice President Al Gore. He later served in the same role for Senate Democratic leader Tom Daschle, and then joined West Wing Writers, the well-regarded speechwriting and strategy firm. I read Undelivered in preparation for this interview, and I really cannot recommend it enough. If you like history, if you like speeches, if you like politics, and all the stories that happen behind the curtain of those three things, you will love this book. I should note it's not Jeff's first book. He also co-authored the best-selling book Had Enough with James Carville in 2003, and he collaborated with Senator Bob Graham of Florida on his book Intelligence Matters, which was published to critical acclaim in 2008. Jeff and I recorded this episode on Thursday, June 23rd. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jeff Nussbaum, welcome to Staffer. Good to be with you, Jim. It is really wonderful to have you here. Um, I am loving your book, Undelivered, which I want to uh, talk about in our interview today. Um, but as you know, I, I like to start these interviews at the beginning with my guests, just to hear a little bit about kind of how they got into this business. Uh, so my first question is, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what home life was like. Yeah, so I grew up uh, west in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. Uh, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a teacher. Um, they were active. They were politically active. I mean, I have pictures of me as a one-year-old in like nuclear freeze marches and and wearing T-shirts that say "Health Professions Against the War." And and so um, I once bought when I had kids, I bought uh, them onesies that said, "I support my parents' political beliefs." So you know, I I think I clearly was raised uh, in support of my parents' <laughs> political beliefs. Um, it was a hand-me-down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but so there was sort of political awareness and a lot of reading. And and we watched a lot of, you know, the McNeil Lehrer News Hour. That was the only thing that was allowed to be on TV around dinner time. So that, that was the beginning. So when you went off to college at Brown, um, I know you did some writing for the paper there, the Daily Herald, uh, opinion pieces specifically. Did you know that you wanted to get into politics even when you headed off to college? Not entirely. I actually loved science and 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 had spent a lot of time after school in my dad's lab. Um, uh, but I knew I liked writing. Um, you know, going back to childhood, my parents showed me a, no, a letter I sent home from from camp, and it was in the form of a New Yorker magazine. I had like written cartoons and had like a small <laughs> items at the front and like a longer feature piece. So I knew I liked writing. Um, <laughs> And and I knew I liked politics, and and it was a little bit at Brown that that I I fell into it writing for the newspaper, um, writing opinion pieces, as you noted, uh, but also that's when I applied for the White House internship after my sophomore year, and and again I I didn't know that my application would stand out particularly, so I wrote a wise ass application essay, um, trying to do two things. One is I was trying to name drop that my great uncle. Um, it was Fred Kahn, who had been uh, Carter's inflation czar, uh, which feels r- relevant um, in, in, in this current moment. Um, and two, uh, 
so two, I wanted to like stand out in some way. So I told the story of when my uncle Fred brought us into the Oval Office and my one-year-old sister who would later go on to reality TV show fame, wet the rug in the Oval Office. So my application essay said, very few people people get a chance to make a mark in the White House. I just want a chance to clean up the one my sister already made. <laughs> and, and they threw me over to speech writing and, and it all flowed from there. That's incredible. High risk, but high reward uh, <laughs> right. tactic. That's brilliant. Yeah, see, well, I had nothing to lose. You know, I had nothing to lose. Yeah. I didn't think I would get it. So, you know, I, I swung for it. So uh, did you did you request speech writing or did you just end up there? Did they cause sort of, I no, see that they, talent they, in you. They, they sort of saw that essay. And at the time, you know, I, I'm showing my age, but, you know, there weren't blogs. There weren't a lot of opportunities to write. And so a school newspaper opinion column was in many ways the closest analog to a speech. 800 yep. words, make an argument, have a colorful lead, things like that. So that's where they threw me. So after college, you made your way right back to the White House. Um, at least as, as I read, you know, the, your, your bio, but tell me, how did you get back? You know, how did that journey actually so, occur? So that summer, um, that I interned was a summer after my sophomore year. During that time, Bob Lehrman, who became a wonderful mentor, um, and was actually writing a textbook on, on speech writing. He left while I was there that summer. And so the office was short staffed and I was really thrown into the fray and, so when I went back to school at the end of the summer, um, I had those relationships and there was a sense among some of the folks I had worked with that like, let's try to get him back down here when, when he can. And so, and so actually the, they, the White House, they, I hadn't finished. I had a semester left of college, but there was sort of a volunteer opportunity that had opened, not paid but they thought there would be a, a staff slot that would open. So I effectively left college early and begged two professors to just pass me in classes so I could graduate. And I was here in, in Washington, you know, writing um, sort of, I was sort of like the staff researcher in President Clinton's speech writing office before I was hired back over uh, to Gore. Um, but, but it was really, it was, it was sort of risky. And I, I, um, you know, was, was, you know, I, I wasn't a, uh, financially secure. Um, but, uh, but it felt like there was going to be a chance and, and, and that's what ultimately came through. Oh, that's incredible. Now, can you tell us how a, a White House speechwriting office is structured? Because at, at any given time, there are a lot of products that need to be delivered, right? I mean, long speeches, short speeches, some big moments, some ones, you know, some speeches are required with almost no you know, advance notice. So is it, you know, is it like an A team of speechwriters where different speechwriters have their own specialties, or is everyone, you know, sort of a marine and capable of writing any type of speech with any, you know, type of deadline? Um, I love both of those analogies, <laughs> and, and and both and both are kind of true. The the one relatively clear division in recent history is that the National Security Council has its own um, the the speechwriters on the NSC side, the foreign policy speechwriters. Um, even though the chief speechwriter oversees all, that's a specialty, um, okay. national security, foreign policy. But on the domestic policy side, people do fall into specialties and subspecialties. Um, but it is really one of, these, one of these moments where you look at the calendar and to misquote Donald Rumsfeld, you've got your known knowns and your known unknowns, um, and you divvy up the known knowns. Here's what we know is on the schedule. Here's, what, here's what's coming up. And then, of course, events intervene. And so people remain on call basically as 
as needed. And that and that's where specialties come in. In in the Biden White House, it's a it's a very lean staff. It's not a lot of people. It's, you know, four or five. In previous administrations, it's been double that in some cases. So no one really had the luxury of, of specializing. But I know in the Obama White House, there were people who, um, you know, preferred to do sort of ceremonial or memorial or emo- emotional remarks. They're, you know, they're folks who preferred economy. Um, but but really, I think most speechwriters, once by the time they get to the White House, feel pretty confident that they can work with most of what's thrown at them. You know, in a in a very short period of time, you went from writing op-eds, right, opinion pieces uh, for a campus newspaper to writing speeches in a White House. And then you uh, worked on the Gore campaign. So you're writing political speeches. Right. When you made that transition from sort of official speeches to political speeches, was there a difference? And is there, um, you know, kind of qualitatively, is there a, is that a new flavor that you sort of had to learn to do differently? It wasn't entirely a new flavor because I had been in the White House with Gore through the 98 cycle. So he was doing, even when speeches weren't overtly political, they were quasi-political. I will say that the difference I have found is that, and now it's almost every speech, but at the time it was when you were speaking officially, you were spending a lot more time explaining right? This is what I'm trying to do. This is why this policy works. Whereas in the political environment, you're spending a lot more time activating. In other words, you sort of dispense with the explanation and you're just trying to get the, to motivate people to move. And and I worry that one of the things that's been lost in speech writing is, and lost in our politics, is that everyone now is spending almost all of their time activating and less of their time explaining. Mm. You know, um, That actually leads me nicely to uh, a chapter of your book about uh, the Nixon resignation, Hmm. right? And the process that led to creating two different speeches, one in which he does resign and one in which the remarks are he doesn't resign. And it, it actually got me thinking about when Gore, you know, chose to accept the, the result of Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court decision. And I imagine that there were, right, versions of Bush v. Gore goes his way versus Bush v. Gore doesn't go his way. Um, My question for you is, was there ever a version of the speech that he didn't accept the results? So I don't know. Um, I was, you know, I was the the junior, I was the 22-year-old kid. So if there was some conversation there, I wasn't privy to it. I don't think... There was ever, I don't think Gore was wired to not accept the result, right? If anyone had a reason or a claim to not accept the result, it was Al Gore, um, right? You could, you could argue he won. He really did. Um, and so, uh, but, but I think he, he wanted to celebrate and, and support democracy. Now, in the book, you know, I have on election night, he was prepared with three different speeches. There was a victory, a concession and a win the electoral college but lose the popular vote, which was thought to be a possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I had my hands on each of those drafts, and then I lost them. And so this book on undelivered speeches, the thing that set the whole thing in motion, I don't have. Um, <laughs> but, but to your question about the Nixon um, non-resignation and resignation speech, it, it was um, when you look at the two speeches side by side, it was sort of a justification in search of a conclusion. Both speeches 
make the same justification, right? The, his argument that he makes, which is an argument we would hear in 2001 from Rudy Giuliani, who wanted to stay in office after September 11th, um, was basically continuity demands, you know, co continuity above all. And so in his non-resignation speech, um, Nixon is basically saying, look, we've lost a president in Kennedy. Um, we've had one drummed out of office in Johnson. Like for stability of America, for the stability of the world, I will stay on. And then when he resigns, he basically says, look, America has problems. It needs stability. It needs a, it needs a full-time president. For that reason, I will resign. And so again, same justification, different conclusion. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, as I read the experience of that speechwriter, he had a real dilemma, right? He, a, a personal dilemma in writing the non-resignation speech. And when I asked you that question about Gore, you know, I knew, or I had a strong presumption, I didn't know, that uh, Al Gore would not request a speech, nor would anyone, you know, proffer that he should have a speech where he rejects the right. outcome of the Supreme Court decision. And yet today we find ourselves in a scenario where speeches like that are being written, right? Yeah. Right. Un unfortunately. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what the ethics of speech writing and and adherence to facts and law. I mean, how do you how do you think of those ethics um, and and what would be your advice to people who may be listening to this show and may work for some of these politicians who are asking for speeches that are divorced from those things? Yeah, it, it's a really great question. And I'm lucky that only in the rarest occasions have I had to write something I've disagreed with. And in none of those cases did it feel existential. Um, you know, there was there was sort of a guns in cockpit speech when I worked for Tom Daschle and, you know, he was from South Dakota. And, and you know, and at the time, James Carville said, look, you can write for someone you agree with 85% of the time who gets, you know, who gets 51% of the vote. Or you can say wonderful things about someone you agree with 100% of the time, but you can't say, them, you know, you, you don't get hired to say them because they didn't get 50% of the vote. So, so like, there's that side of it. But I think ultimately, um, to your question, uh, you need to know what sword you're willing to fall on. Um, I really believe that. Like you need to have, uh, you need to have your own line. Um, you need to be able to live with yourself at the end of the day. And and this actually has come into you know in my private sector life. You know, having a company where we had to determine: is this a client we take? Is this a client we don't take? The the other thing I will say, and this fuzzes fuzzes the line a little bit, is that I had a client who once said to me memorably and wonderfully. Um, Speeches are theater, not disclosure. Um, and, you know, and this client was a lawyer basically saying like a speech, yes, it should be truthful, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't need to be legally truthful. You know, it can be a little theatrical. And so I think people just need to be really careful about knowing that, um, and in the White House, it, it is disclosure and theater. I mean, we have everything rigorously fact-checked by our research office. And, and, and things like that. Um, but I do think um, theater can't totally overwhelm disclosure. Um, and so when, when theater goes too far, that's when you get into, into real trouble. Yeah. Well, you've written speeches for, I mean, some of the highest caliber public servants we have. You worked in the, right, the, the Clinton White House for yeah. Vice President Gore, for Tom Daschle when he was Democratic leader in the minority and the majority. Um, 
and President Biden. I mean, it's it's an incredible um, list of leaders, but they're also all different public speakers. And in your in your private sector career at, at West Wing Writers, I'm sure you worked with a broad diversity of of types of speakers. So when you are with those official people, you have the the opportunity to develop to develop relationships with them to really appreciate right. right what they're good at and what their styles are over time. But when you're sizing up a speaker without a lot of time to do it, what are you looking for that will inform your speech writing? Yeah, I, I love this question because it gets to something the, the the client, the speaker often asks, which is a version of how are you going to sound like me? You know, how are you going to make it work for me? And one of the things I say is whenever you enter into whoever you're writing for, usually by the point in someone's career where they have they can have someone help them write, they have a bit of a record. So you can watch YouTube and read interviews and look at transcripts and, and all that. But that ultimately can almost sound like a pale imitation of them, like you're trying to imitate their language. And so the thing I say is, I really spend a lot of time asking them how they think, how they make an argument, how they view the world. Because one of the things I've said is, if it thinks like me, it sounds like me. So that's where I really focus my energies on trying to understand someone's worldview and and how they make an argument. Um, And it's not always the same way I would make an argument. And that's how, you know, I end up writing for you know, a plain spoken South Dakotan, a Cajun from Louisiana, you know, celebrities I won't name here, you know, the occasional rock star, right? They're all very different. But once you kind of get a sense of what their worldview is, the job becomes a little easier. I love it. Yeah. Um, so a, an underappreciated skill of speech writing um, that I have observed firsthand, not as a speech writer, but as one of the people around speech writing <laughs> is diplomatic skill. Because the, you know, speech writing is one of those things that everyone seems to have an opinion on what the candidate should say, right? It can be family members. It can be other pals, um, you know, friends, donors, et cetera. There are lots of opinions that come in, and the speechwriter sort of has to deal with them all. Um, can you talk about that and specifically yes, yes. pull out the thread <laughs> from the Dashiell experience, which I love? <laughs> I I would love I would love to talk about this. So I think the I think the thread you want me to pull from Dashiell experience was this wonderful bit of wisdom, and I can't remember if it came from Mark Patterson or Mark Childress, where they would walk around saying fundraisers are not focus groups. Fundraisers are not focus groups. That's in other one. words, in other words, whatever you heard in Hollywood last night doesn't need to be our party's platform tomorrow. So <laughs> so that is that is certainly part of it. I will say to me the most interesting story about this didn't wasn't mine but in in the book in undelivered in Hillary Clinton's victory speech um the the emotional touchstone of that speech was effectively sent in unsolicited by a Pulitzer prize winning poet to the speechwriter and and he modified it and and secretary clinton modified it further but the idea that Yes, you do get suggestions. And generally, when things are going poorly, the volume of suggestions uh, really amps up because everyone just says, if they would just say it this way, I would solve all your problems. And and so, you know, speechwriters have folders for like, you know, the unsolicited emails that come in. But there is an element of diplomacy because ultimately the speech is where in many ways, especially for an elected official, it becomes real. Like, oh, I got to go out and say this. And so the diplomacy isn't just taking input from lots of different people. It's it's basically engaging in this process and saying, 
you know, a little bit of policy gets tweaked often in response to the question, can we say it this way? Yeah. Well, and for anyone out there wondering about that Hillary Clinton victory speech, that alone is worth buying this book for. But the, the book is chock full of interesting um, historical perspective and speeches. But the beauty of that passage, it's, it is, it's a shame that, that it didn't get used. It is, it's poetry, and it's such amazing imagery um, that you should go buy the book just to read that passage. Yes, and, and, and so we don't keep uh, your listeners fully in suspense. It's basically an adult Hillary has an imagined conversation with her mother as an eight-year-old, and it is just, it is, it is beautiful. It really is. Um, you mentioned James Carville. Uh, with whom you collaborated and co-authored a book, Had Enough, question mark. Um, right. Tell me about James. Like, you know, he's been, I, I think you've described him as a mentor uh, in the past. So like, you know, he's one of the all-time greats uh, in terms of political operators. Right. So, you know, what do you take away from from? Yeah, I, I, and I will share this only because I've said it to James's face and he finds it amusing. But but people think that James Carville they see is is a little bit of an act or an affectation. And I say, no, no, it is a daily failed struggle to achieve normalcy. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but James is uh, brilliant in a million different ways. And one of those ways is, is distillation, um, that he just vacuums up information, you know, five newspapers a day. Um, you know, he was the last person I ever saw who actually got the, the airlines to send him their timetables. Um, and he would sort of just memorize flights so that he could then call a travel agent and say, I want this Delta flight connecting with this American flight. So he just vacuumed up information and then synthesized it. And, and that was a real skill. And he would often say, it's okay to have an opinion on everything, uh, especially to elected officials. It's just not okay to share your opinion on everything. <laughs> um, but but having the opportunity to work with him was was just a, a tremendous education. And, and it didn't hurt that a lot of that work took place at the Palm Restaurant or the Horse Track or spring training for the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles. Um, but um, but it, it, it really, it, it was about, it was about taking in, you know, a lot of noise and figuring out what the relevant resonant signal um, would be for sure. And, and I will say, I'll, I'll, I'll also share one story, which is that um, when you talk about sounds like me, thinks like me, um, you know, James sort of would help, would kind of dictate ideas for the book and I would write them down and then I'd come back to him. And so in these books, he loves cooking, he loves Cajun food. And so he gave me a passage that talked about like all politics, like all cooking begins with a roux. And I heard, cause I'm not a cook and I'm not from Louisiana. I heard root R O O T. Like I was like, this doesn't really make sense, but maybe every recipe begins with like a tuber, you know, a potato, some root vegetable. <laughs> and so I really like, wrote a couple of paragraphs about how it all grows up from the roots. Um, and he looked, he looked at that and he looked at me and he goes, what the hell are you talking about? Roux R O U X. And so, um, so yes, so there was a, there, there was a English, English language barrier initially, but we over, but we overcame it. <laughs> uh, you know, that, uh, the issue of distillation, I mean, it is such a, a, a gift, uh, when people, you know, are able to do it, uh, and, and speech writing is an exercise in that distillation at all times. But I, my question for you is, you know, just in our lifetimes, you know, you're writing speeches. In, in the Clinton White House, for Gore, for Daschle, and then comparing that to writing speeches during the Obama campaign for President Biden. I mean, 
it seems to me the 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 landscape in which speeches are consumed today is quite different in 2022 than it was right in 1997 98 um how does that inform your speech writing i i have thoughts on this so um so i i kind of i i've sort of seen it happen in three phases um and and i'll describe them as um a hole a vector and a Rosetta Stone. In other words, early in my career and prior to my career, people consumed speeches as a whole, right? As an album, not as tracks, but an album. And right, this is why speeches were entertainment, Lincoln Douglas debates, let's go spend three hours listening to people talk. Um, You know, uh, FDR's fireside chats, we're going to listen to this whole story. Um, And that's how it was prior to my entering politics. And, And by the time I kind of got involved, it was, it was changing from being a whole to being a vector. And by being a vector, I mean, people would see a soundbite or a passage on the news um, and a soundbite on the news, you know, in the sixties and seventies was like 40 seconds by the nineties, it's gone down to six seconds. Um, But, but technology, YouTube in particular allowed you, if you saw a soundbite to use that soundbite as a vector to go find the, the whole thing. And that's one of the things that surprised me constantly on that first Obama campaign which was um, how many full watches speeches got on YouTube when people came to it through the link in the soundbite. So, uh-huh. so you know, it wasn't 400,000. I mean, it was for Obama, for Biden running for VP. It was, you know, 40, 60, 80,000. But a, but a lot of people wanted to hear the whole story, but they vectored in through this soundbite or a smaller piece of it. And now it, it's really a Rosetta Stone, which is, um, by that, I mean the speech gets written. It gets written in full, but it's really never consumed as a whole. It's picked apart to say, this line's the tweet. This line is the Instagram story. This line, these two paragraphs are going into the fundraising email. And so you have the speech there as a whole, but it's almost never consumed as a whole. It's consumed in pieces. Um, and so that's kind of been the transition that I've seen. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting, and I hadn't really thought of it w- down to that dissected level. Um, something well, this else is the first time I've said it, so I'm sort of glad my my. Well, my, it's, uh, it's, I, my, I really like it. Uh, yeah. um, something else uh, you are known to be very good at is humor, and and humor in political settings is hard, um, and and humor as part of a speech is hard. So. You know, what is your advice to speechwriters um, on how they should approach it when sometimes their boss, you know, is so used to saying something, but they'll say like, but I need a joke or I want to be entertaining in this speech, right? And that's not, you know, typically that is not a a a, um, a well-formed skill of lots of people whose job it is to write speeches for bosses. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you mentioning my my sort of humor background. Although, I, as you're seeing right now, I can't do it on demand because I wish I had some sort of witty <laughs> rejoinder to to this thing you've said. Um, but um, but there are a couple things. One thing I often say, especially for people who say my boss isn't funny, but they want to be funny, you get credit for knowing what funny is. So if you if your boss says, you know, as as Stephen Colbert said last night and tell someone else's joke, they'll still get a laugh and they'll get credit for knowing what funny is, even if they're not naturally funny. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is, um, 
right? There's only one totally safe form of humor and it's self-deprecation and that's not easy for everyone. But if you can make fun of yourself, you know, and, and Dashiell and others, um, you know, used to have uh, like pages and pages of, of self-deprecating humor that w- they'd used to start speeches, you know, like Tom Dash would say, like I once, you know, gave, you know, was, was asked to speak at a nursing home, you know, and as I walked in, I said, you know, do you, do you know who I am? And they said, no, but if you go to the front desk, they'll tell you. And so, you know, it's like, right. Like that is just like, you know, anyway, um, maybe, maybe even that's a, a cancelable joke now since we don't joke about dementia, but anyway. Um, but so self-deprecation is, is generally safe. Um, and that's, that's good to know. But the, the other thing, and again, these are all just hacks. If you're not coming up with original stuff is I would have pages and pages of story jokes that made political points. Um, People think like a joke should just be at the beginning of a speech. And I think a joke is almost more powerful when it makes a serious point. So, you know, I had like my Jewish audience joke file, right? And there's like the joke about the yeshiva crew team and right. And they were trying to figure out why they're so terrible. And they, they finally figure out and the captain calls the coach and says, coach, coach, I got it. Um, You know, Harvard who trounced us, they have eight guys rowing and only one guy yelling. And and so like, so, right, like that's a joke where the down ramp is, so we all have to be rowing together. And there are lots of jokes that exist that I try to tweak them so that they're almost delivery proof because it's, it is a joke, but it's also a speech. You're telling a story and then your punchline actually has a politically relevant point to it. Yep. Um, well, as I mentioned, I mean, one of the, one of the things that so pleasantly surprised me about the book was how much history I learned, how much about the players behind these speeches I learned. Um, and it's a, it is a joy to read. Um, it, it got me thinking about your process and something that I've observed about speechwriters, and I just like your thoughts on it. It seems like you are all students of history and and voracious in your consumption of all sorts of things. You know, I mean, history and culture. You're weaving together these these speeches that draw on so many things. So is that right? Like, I mean, does all that come from an individual speechwriter? Or is that sort of how, you know, speeches, particularly at a presidential level, you know, accrete good stuff as they as they go through the process? I, I think I think that is speechwriters fall into speechwriting from a lot of different places. There's not like one, this is how you become a speechwriter curriculum. But I do think a, a, a shared love of history is and a curiosity is really part of it. And and I will say, when I first met President Biden, he was Senator Biden. He had been named, you know, the vice presidential nominee. And, and I was introduced to him. I'd been hired by the Obama campaign to write for whoever was picked to be the VP nominee. And and Joe Biden looked at me, um, looked skyward, crossed himself, and said, "I've been in the Senate longer than you've been alive. What are you going to teach me?" <laughs> so so. That was my introduction. And the answer to the question, what are you going to teach me? Part of it is I'm going to find out everywhere you're going and help you figure out what the news in that town is or what the people there care about or or what's going on locally. But the other thing that I can, I can quote, help you with is if I really am a student of history and I, I, I can help place your argument in a larger arc of of whether it's the community or the country or the world. And just having that awareness 
um, you know, this is, I'll, I'll, I'll share this only because it was, you know, an example of something that didn't get used, but it helped inform my thinking is, um, you know, I just read the, the Eric Larson book about London during the Blitz. And I was so surprised that, you know, when, when death was coming for people almost indiscriminately, you know, as bombs fell, people were partying and dancing and, and, and cavorting and carousing and, 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 and it just helped me understand and not judge people who in the worst of COVID just couldn't be, wouldn't put on masks, wouldn't isolate. And, and it, it just helped that even just that history helped me not bring malice to a conversation about like, why aren't you behaving? And it, there was something just from reading history and humanity that if, if you, if, if everything feels so uncertain, why not live? And so certainly that wasn't the way I acted and I would like it if more people didn't, but it at least helped me come to the issue with more compassion. And that's kind of where Joe Biden comes to a lot of these things from. Oh, that's such a good point about history as a pathway to perspective and empathy. Yeah. Um, a, a One of the things you tackle in your book that um, was eye-opening for me um, was how speech writing actually played a part in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I, you know, I, I'm, I love history. Um, I'm not a historian by any stretch, but I, I, I really enjoy it. And I've read a fair amount about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I had never come across this um, piece about uh, an assignment given to the two camps the, the, who were debating how the president should respond. There was a, um, a bombing, you know, an airstrike team which had to develop, you know, an argument, and then it would go up against the blockade uh, team who had to develop an argument. But can you, for our listeners, walk through what the first part of that assignment was for both yes. of them? Yes, absolutely. And those two teams, um, when they were described later in the Saturday Evening Post, that was the first description of, uh, that was the first use of the terms, hawks and doves. I so, no so, so these were the hawks and doves. And, um, and, RFK had was kind of Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, was sort of overseeing these two groups within the executive council of the National Security Council, which was the advisory group during this crisis. And each group had to present a recommendation to the president. But the cover, the first document in their recommendation was had to be a draft speech to the nation announcing this course of action. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of this. And I just I loved it as as an idea, which is one of the things I've often said in my private sector life is, you know, the best product doesn't always win. The best explainer often does. And here was Robert Kennedy basically saying, if we can't explain in a satisfactory and compelling way our course of action, maybe it's not the right course of action. Um, and, and indeed, um, anyone who touched the airstrike speech, and many people later denied having touched the airstrike speech, basically said, um, we couldn't find a great argument um, for this. There were just too much uh, that wasn't known. And in fact, McGeorge Bundy, who was the president's national security advisor, said, you know, if I could have written a better argument for the airstrike speech, you know, for the airstrike option, you know, that that may have come to pass. Now, the other thing that speech has, um, which I write in the book, which is incredibly harrowing, is a bracket um, where they were going to put in, you know, what the after effects. And, and in the bracket, they write, uh, follows a description of first reports of action. What we didn't know, of course, at the time is those missile sites weren't just sites. Those were already armed nuclear missiles. Command of those missiles 
uh, was in was in the hands of the commanders on the ground. They didn't have to call Moscow. I mean, it, it that that bracket, uh, I say, uh, could have been filled with with humanity's suicide note. Well, and they they really were dealing with an existential issue. The fate of humanity, right, was was really something that they were debating in the situation room over that period of time. Absolutely. And Robert Kennedy later wrote, like, it started to do funny things to people's minds. So when so when everyone denied having written the airstrike speech, and in the book, I go down a rabbit hole, I commissioned an FBI forensic analyst to look at the handwriting, I make a little bit of a conclusion as to who wrote it. But 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 I completely understand that someone could have written this speech and blacked it out. I mean, if you're looking at the at again, so as you said, something totally existential, it really it really does mess with your mind. Was how did you get these speeches, and and was it difficult? So uh, you know, different paths uh, with different varieties of breadcrumbs. Um, but starting after election night two thousand. I started thinking like, what are the other places in history where things have come so close to pass um, that there was an alternate outcome and an alternate draft? And it's not just elections, right? There's issues of war and peace. There's the D-Day landing. There's even in the book an Academy Award speech when uh, when La La Land was called instead of Moonlight. Um, and so in many cases, I will see some reference to the fact that there was a speech prepared and then follow those, follow the the dots till I till I find or till I don't find the speech. Um, and in a couple of cases, I didn't find. You know, I uh, I had read and heard that there was a speech prepared for President Carter for the failure of the Camp David Accords. I found the guy who wrote it. He remembers it. He remember putting it on the president's desk. And then when the Camp David Agreement came together, you know, some they basically swept their arm across the desk and put it all in a box. You know, in the Carter Center, they have the box, but the speech isn't in there. So, um, you know, or the case of, of Emperor Hirohito apologizing for World War II, you know, I found in an Australian magazine a reference that the emperor had wanted to apologize and may have even written a speech. And so I sort of tracked down the biographer of the head of the imperial household at the time and the the um, Library of Congress. And God, libraries are amazing and librarians are amazing. Um the, the Japan Reading Room helped me get the, the draft in Japanese, and then I commissioned two translators. So each one was its own adventure. And, and I'm not a historian and I'm not a journalist, but, but part of what I loved about writing this, this book is I got to behave like both. Incredible. What about yourself? Do you have a favorite speech or a part of a favorite speech that never got delivered? Oh, this is a great question. I um, I. I'm sure I do. Um, I'm sure I do. I not none is coming immediately to mind. And by the way, I, I will say in the book, I really didn't include any of my own because I didn't want this to be a vanity project. I wanted this to be real chapters in history. Um, I mean, we there are loads. I've I have loads of speeches that didn't get delivered. Right. I, I you know the president was getting ready to give a speech about electric buses when the George Floyd verdict came down. Like now that now I'm not gonna put an electric bus speech in some future version of this book. Um, but, you know, the, well, there's the joke, right, about the speechwriter who's given the choice between heaven and hell uh, and and asks to see hell. And it's millions of speechwriters hammering away on millions of keyboards on deadline. 
He says, this is terrible. This is like the worst version of my life. Show me heaven. And it's millions of speechwriters hammering away on millions of keyboards <laughs> on deadline. And, he's, and he says, St. Peter, this looks just like hell. And St. Peter goes, oh, no, no. Up here, we use their material. So, <laughs> so every speechwriter is familiar with having written stuff that doesn't get used. All right. I could, I could ask you questions all day um, about your background and about speechwriting. Um, I have a couple of recurring segments that I yeah. like to ask. Um, all of my guests. One of them is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time where you made a mistake and you know what the mistake was, what you learned from it, and how you recovered? Yeah. So th- this one is, uh, that I'm going to share is actually serious, um, and it, it really pains me. But one of the ways I, I write speeches is I, I'm sort of a magpie, and I keep a Word document open, and I drop things in from articles and quotes, and, and, and I sort of then I write through this thing. And in one case, and this was not for an elected official, so no one should go looking for it. Um, I, I wrote, um, I, I kept a, a, a little bit of text that um, that I just dropped in, but I failed to realize that I hadn't really integrated it. And so uh, effectively, I plagiarized. Um, and I, when I saw it, I was sickened. And it, it didn't get called out publicly in a big way. But, but all I could do um, was own up to the, the person who I was writing for and apologize and send a letter explaining that this was on me um, and, and how I had screwed it up and, and gave it to that person for their files if they ever got called out on it. And I said, if you ever get called out on it, show, show this letter. This is on me 100%. And it was, and, and, and while I was heartsick, um, I was, I was at West Wing Writers at the time, you know, I, I kind of, I put it on a slide. I presented it at our all staff lunches. You know, it's just like, I had a client who used to joke that the best way to attend the school of hard knocks is to have someone else pay the tuition. And, um, and, and so I hope that my mistake, um, has has paid the tuition so that others don't make that mistake. But that was um, that that was that was not a good one, and that was one of my lowest moments professionally, for sure. Well, it, I can understand why that is a total gut punch, yeah. and it certainly speaks to you know kind of how perfectly meticulous one needs to be in this field, right? I mean, how many speeches have you written over the years, and one? Right, one clip and paste without the right yeah. footnote or you know additional note. Um, but it also, I, I, I will say I, to I, your I, credit, I, how one responds. You know, everybody makes mistakes. How yeah. one responds to the mistake is really what I love, like hearing about. And obviously, like you're using it to instruct others, which is about well, you know and, and protect the person who was you know out there on a limb. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I will say is, especially in speeches. You don't lose anything by giving credit. You could say, you know, as this reporter wrote and, and quote it. So part part of why I was upset is was just boneheaded, right? Why not give credit? Like with jokes, you get credit for knowing what is good the same way you get credit for knowing what is funny. Just give people credit, right? Like, you know, and, and maybe it's a different time and, you know, Elon Musk steals memes left and right. But I just still believe you always should credit an idea or a beautiful piece of language wherever you can find, wherever you found it. Yeah, here, here. So you have worked with 
some amazing people. I mean, you've been you've operated at the the highest levels of speech writing in in democratic politics now for a long time. Um, I have this notion uh, that if I could raise the money and get the proper permitting, I would build <laughs> a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall. So if I were to be able to do that, who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Oh, there's there are so many. And right now, every staffer working on the January 6th commission, like they are working to save democracy. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't name one. Going from, you know, the Dashiell team, in that in that sort of 2000 to 2004 era, um, and it became the Obama team. So they were talented, but they but they were joyful um, also. So you know, people whose names some people know, the Mark Pattersons and Mark Childresses and Pete Rouses and 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 Molly Rallies of the world were just just a joy a joy to work with. Um, for years, both in Gore and then in the private sector, I worked with Paul Orszlak so much so that after 20 years of working together, which would be a platinum anniversary. I got him a catalytic converter from a car because a a it contains platinum, and b I said we've we processed a lot of hot air together. Um, so uh, you know, so I I've been so blessed with with wonderful mentors and colleagues. I know that's that's not, I've given you a lot of names and none at all. That's okay. But, I yeah. um that's a great list of people. So I, I welcome them with open arms oh, uh, in, into the Hall of Fame. Um, all right. Well, look, as I said, I could talk to you all day. Is there anything, my last question then, is is there anything I should have asked you or that we should just, you know, make sure our listeners hear uh, before we depart? No, no. I think I think we covered it all. Um, this is this has been really fun. No, I, I mean, I, maybe I'll just end with with a pitch if, if you're interested. The book is called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Um, so I, I hope um, you enjoy it um, uh, because I had a I had a fun time writing it. Well, I've loved it. Um, I highly uh, recommend the book. Um, Jeff, I've really enjoyed our conversation uh, today and just the opportunity to reconnect. So thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Jim. I want to thank you all for listening to The Only Show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.